And welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners. Before we get to our exciting guests, we have Lauren on the line. We have tons of important news. We have live guests. We have it all. I just want to let you know that if you're listening live here in Toronto uh, or shortly after on the podcast, you will know that October, uh, November, uh, rather, the 10th is the last day to uh, apply for the CIUT Early Bird Prizing Announcement where you can win concert tickets to Cats, Anastasia, and Come From Away. Make sure you go to CIUT.FM before November the 10th to make sure that you qualify for that draw. Now, back to our exciting programming with Stefan and Dave. And yes, the green majority, the sound of your city, CIUT 89.5. FM, that is Saren Kaster on the ones and twos. <laughs> Stefan Hostetter in the studio. I'm Curly Dave Hostetter. And we have Lauren Latour on the line. Do we have Lauren Latour on the line? You do indeed. We do indeed. Stefan? Yes. Stefan, uh, his mic is, needs to be turned up a little bit there. Yeah. And yes, we're going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff immediately. A, uh, a, a, a very disturbing conglomerate. Uh, I've put together of news and some... <laughs> Is that what we're calling the opening segment? Dis- Disturbing conglomerate of news. Yes. And uh, possibly something about the CBC Kids News Venture, which started last year. And we're going to have our circular economy expert, Kim D'Oliveira, in for the second segment. And possibly some intriguing pipeline developments, or rather some very typical pipeline developments. Also some intriguing pipeline developments. In the third section. In concert. So I shall now begin. Yes, begin with the conglomerate, please. Okay. The uh, environmental justice movements in wealthier northern countries, such as ours, are continuing to gain steam as anti-government and anti-austerity protests with a revolutionary feeling are violently ongoing in Hong Kong, Chile, Lebanon, Puerto Rico, Iraq, Haiti, Algeria, and Ecuador. We had the Our Time protests in Ottawa last week, as Sunrise Movement sit-ins are recurring in Washington, and student strikes erupted all over Toronto this week, protesting Doug Ford's education cuts and demanding free tuition. And some of the major political protests just mentioned also have direct environmental ties and implications, as the Chilean government has decided, as a result of the unrest, to cancel COP25 that was supposed to kick off in December in Santiago. Chile also canceled the APEC meeting that it was supposed to host this month. COP25 will probably now be held in Spain instead. And yes, despite the conference's perpetual failings, it is still a good place for poorer countries to scold richer ones into paying their fair share for climate efforts, especially as the U.S. will uh, will soon become the only country on Earth outside of the Paris Agreement. The U.S. also just recently reneged on its promised $2 billion contribution to the Green Climate Fund, which inspired the snide governments of Russia and Australia to back out on their commitments as well. The fund was created to help poorer countries with their climate mitigation efforts, as is only fair, while other wealthier countries moved in and while other wealthier countries moved in to fill the gap, the fund will still be losing around $500 million dollars as a result of the weak and wishy-washy way that some powerful people are in the habit of thinking about the world. Still speaking of the environmental connection to the widespread political anger, part of the unrest in Algeria has to do with the government's uh, corrupt handling of its natural gas reserves, especially as it has been in defiance of its mandate to yield to new elections since the spring, and is trying to quickly bring in investment from companies like ExxonMobil and Chevron, which will then have a direct stake 
in propping up the precarious and deeply unpopular government. Protests also went down in Brazil recently against the biggest oil auction in the country's history, which turned out to be a complete financial disaster, since not a single more major foreign oil company made a bid. Indigenous leaders in Brazil, meanwhile, are continuing to defend their territories from the warlike aggressions of illegal loggers, with one land defender recently being killed in an ambush in the Amazon. Violent land theft against indigenous peoples in the Amazon has been rising since Bolsonaro took office and began undermining environmental and indigenous protection agencies and legitimizing genocidal aggression with his hideous rhetoric. Bolsonaro has also recently been implicated in the assassination of feminist and human rights activist politician Marielle Franco. The uh, spike in deforestation in the Amazon has, of course, been widely reported, and it is now thought that if current rates continue, the Amazon could reach a tipping point as soon as 2021, after which it will not be able to produce enough rain to sustain itself. The Pope, in an attempt to influence the future of the Amazon, held the first ever synod of 200 bishops, experts, and indigenous Amazonians last month, after which a Bolsonaro advisor said that they should be worried about saving souls rather than trees. Pope Francis, of course, focused his entire 2015 encyclical on the church's religious and moral obligation to protect the earth, and also took his papal name from St. Francis of Assisi, a 12th century Italian man, who is in the habit of holding conversations with birds and wolves, and possibly even the moon. One man with a gilded scepter, a mobile, and a global network of authoritative religious influence has not been enough to save the world, however, as two Indonesian journalists were recently killed for investigating an illegal palm oil plantation. Indians are walking around with gas masks in Delhi to protect against the gas chamber-like thicket of smog swallowing the city, Several EU countries are introducing massive new fossil fuel subsidies, and Donald Trump has chosen to stop protecting waterways from toxic coal ash, which will, according to Food and Water Watch, quote, lead directly to more water contamination, more birth defects, more childhood cancer, and more pain and suffering for American families, all for the sake of a dirty industry's last grasp at profits. There are also huge rock slides, crushing roads and houses and tourists in the Swiss Alps due to the melting mountain glaciers, loosening the rocks that hang over vulnerable towns in a perpetually looming catastrophe. A quarter of the global pig population is expected to die from African swine fever, with one source having predicted that China could have lost as many as 350 million pigs this year. So far they have called a million pigs to contain the disease. And giant petroleum tanks and asphalt tankers in Maine are creating a local South, Port South Portland air of such strange toxicity that even the state's chemist doesn't understand what's happening. California, of course, continues to burn, and Atlantic writer Annie Lowry astutely points out that the compounding pressures of wildfires and unaffordable housing are making the state unlivable, since you can't afford to live in the cities unless you're rich or homeless, and every place else is catching fire all the time burning more houses down and driving rental prices even higher. Donald Trump is threatening to cut off federal funding to fight these, these fires, blaming Governor Gavin Newsom for his failed forest management. And in the midst of all this, we have a new study that is emblematic of the cartoonishly worsening nature of climate reports, saying that researchers underestimated the number of people at risk from rising seas. 
They now believe that 300 million people's homes will be flooded every year by 2050 due to climate change. The majority of these people are in China, India, Bangladesh, and Indonesia. Thankfully, we have a fresh warning about the climate crisis prepared by scientists and signed by 11,000 more or less qualified people worldwide that is certain to lead to a global spiritual revolution and save us in the nick of time. After laying out their case for eliminating methane, soot, and HFCs, restoring Earth's ecosystems, becoming vegetarian, shifting our economic goals away from the empty pursuit of personal riches, and reducing population through gender equity and education. They conclude, quote, We are encouraged by a recent surge of concern. Governmental bodies are making climate emergency declarations. School children are striking. Ecocide laws are proceeding in the courts. Grassroots citizen movements are demanding change, and many countries, states, and provinces, cities, and businesses are responding. As the Alliance of World Scientists, we stand ready to assist decision-makers in a just transition to a sustainable and equitable future. We urge widespread use of vital signs, which will allow policymakers, uh, the private sector, and the public to understand the magnitude of this crisis, track progress, and realign priorities for alleviating climate change. The good news is that such transformative change, with social and economic justice for all, promises far greater human well-being than does business as usual. We believe that the prospects will be greatest if decision-makers and all of humanity promptly respond to this warning and declaration of a climate emergency and act to sustain life on planet Earth, our only home. Well, uh, it's about as depressing as normal comments are. Uh, I'm going to go to to you, Lauren, first. Yeah, that that was a lot to process, David. Thank you for... bringing together all of those all of those many stories to drive home how terrible everything is on this beautiful Friday morning. It is a very uh, beautiful day. I'm, right? Yeah. <laughs> um almost feeling almost feeling like almost getting in the mood of the holidays anyway. <laughs> we'll get into that. Um I'm going to circle back to like the very first thing you touched on um uh which is um what's going on with COP right now. Um to mm. remind listeners COP uh, stands for Conference of the Parties. In this case, what we're referring to is is the COP that happens annually po- uh, hosted by the um, UNFCCC, which is the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Um, and, and sort of the most famous of these was uh, COP21 in Paris several years ago, where, where the Paris Accord came out of. Um, they still happen every year uh, because every year people need to get back in this negotiating space to figure out sort of what next steps are, how do we implement this fantastic plan that was developed, um, yada, yada, yada. Anyway, um, this year isn't a massive cop year, but next year is a big cop year because it's going to be COP26, which means it's five years after the implementation of the Paris Agreement, which means that it's like a big stock take year. It's a year when people are supposed to, well, when, when nations are supposed to come back and say, okay, here are, here are our revised targets. Here's how we're going to ratchet up our our our, um, our decrease in warming. Um, sorry, Friday brain here. Um, anyway, needless to say, COP still happens every year, and it's an important, albeit kind of tricky, space. And this has been made doubly so with what's been going in uh, going on in Chile. Um, there were lots of civil society groups who weren't interested in going to COP as it was being hosted in Chile anymore, given the fact that it was being hosted by a country, um, or by a government specifically, who is sort of begetting and perpetuating violence on its civilians, like currently every day as we speak, um, and uh, and it's 
sort of in the throes of, a, of an anti-austerity revolution. Um, so needless to say, there were a lot of folks who were really uncomfortable going to COP. Um, and even though it has been moved to Spain, um, it's still being presided over by Chile, which still sort of has that, has, so, so that element of, um, I don't know, people are still really sort of a little bit tentative about, about going. Um, that's not saying people aren't going. Um, but no, because it's being moved to Spain and it's keeping the same dates from December 12th to the 13th, um, it, it means that people are having to book and, and rebook hotels and flights and stuff like that, which is, which is totally fine for wealthy nations and wealthy delegations with diplomats. But it's a little bit harder for poorer nations and, and poor civil society members um, because it, it means that not only do you have the added expense of having to rebook a flight, you have the difficulty of trying to rebook a visa, which from certain countries isn't possible to get in, in, in under a month which is what they're being asked to do right now. So it means that we're going to have less involvement at this COP from um, the smaller developing nations and smaller developing civil society groups that, that, we, that we need there really badly because COP um, is quite a big anesthetized, like sanitized space. And it's really, really hard to remember what you're fighting for, which, you're, which are the lives on the line and, and the ecosystems and the homes of people when you're in this big, massive facility that's state-of-the-art and you're surrounded by people in, in expensive suits. So, so we need these civil society groups, we need these poor nations to be present at COP to remind people of why they're fighting. And, and unfortunately, there's going to be an absence of those groups this year, I think. Yeah, and and what a yeah, what a year to to miss it. I I think the what's interesting, you know, at the very beginning, that how important next year is going to be. And I think next year might be, like I I I don't I don't want to overstate it, but I kind of believe that uh, that next year may end up be proving the the tipping point uh, one way or the other. You know, a, a a series of bad things next year could 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 really 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 harm uh, this world for generations to come um and uh you know whether or not it's in part because of how much you know the elections will be going on before cop and then what the sort of motivations and energy coming into it um the thing i want to pull out uh, of this which uh, which i'd love to hear your thoughts on lauren i, I can guess what they are but uh, but we can mm-hmm. really hear you, is that the that, that you know, this is the the sort of the the, the hodge the hodgepodge of, of that news. Uh, while it sort of fo- followed a, sp- a specific track, and I think it's all the conne- what connecting point to me is is sort of I don't know this level of I'm sure I told you so that people probably in the early nine they were warning about things in the ni- early eighties and nineties were sort of thinking about you know the the fact that there was sort of this in the, the, the what was begun in the eighties and nineties that was towards a very very neoliberal uh, global world order um, of some nature has has everyone is sort of worrying and, and, and would highlight sort of that this is the track it would go you know if you look at um, you know the fall of civilizations in the past you know it comes centrally from wealth inequality um, and then includes uh, and then includes some type of other environmental pressure uh, as 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 it goes along and that's sort of a you know we've seen that time and time again um, with 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 how with how this sort of you know this sort of cyclical nature occurs, and and I think that the that to me that you know there's a thing recently I was an article out that came out a while ago that was sort of asking the question of like why is everyone protesting right now, um, you know like there's 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 and again this is one of those things I'm always kind of trying to check myself on which is I can never entirely tell if I am seeing a trend or if I am just paying more attention. 
<laughs> and, right. and and so I'm I'm always struggling to say to, to to try to to try to identify trends because of the fact that it might just be the fact that I, I I was not paying as much attention. But it feels like for sure to me right now that there are more major protests ongoing in the world uh, than than average. Shall we say, you know, there's that that and, and, and that in the places that there aren't there have been in the past or there were soon. And you sort of see this sort of moving towards and this rejection, you know, whether it was in you know, the Chile, the Chile strikes or the, the, the sort of protests that began in Chile sort of I don't and obviously were not started. But there was that big motion uh, to sort of uh, to, they try to increase a price on uh, on public transit. And that sort of brought out that sort of began not began. But that was sort of a big a flashpoint for this for this protest that sort of has now, uh, you know, the erupted and and in maintains trying to hold their, their government to account. And you see these different types of examples all over the place, um, you know, where where the people who are being harmed by austerity uh, are looking at the uber wealthy of their nations and being like, how can these two things exist in the same world? And 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 that and that is especially then you know especially stark as you then sort of see the, the amount of environmental destruction being caused by uh, caused by the by the you know, by the by the elite. Um, you know, it reminds me even of, of say Bill Gates uh, this year or, or, or earlier this week was sort of like I've paid ten billion dollars in taxes. You know, uh, you know if you, now if you ask me to pay a hundred billion dollars in taxes, that's when I start counting how much money I have left. And you and someone is like, you still have seven billion dollars. If you cannot live on seven billion dollars, what are you doing? You know, mm-hmm. and, and it's like it gets to a point where, where, where even the you know, even these even the, the level of wealth that exists, that 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 they are there's such an overwhelming out of touchness in the in, in, in that, that that is that is displayed by so many of these these um, the, the individuals who have this much money that it's like that the idea that they might lose that they, the, the idea that they might be the you know, hundredth richest person in the world instead of the second richest person in the world is somehow unconscionable to them. Uh, and even these these people who you know purport to really care about the world, you know, like someone there was a great there was you know there was a there was a great point made on Twitter recently about how someone is like oh, the government thinks they can spend money Bill Gates's money better than he can, uh, and then someone else was like you know Bill Gates uh, took a bunch of ideas from Jeffrey Epstein, uh, so let's not use his uh, understanding as how we go. Um, Never mind that he doesn't spend his money, which is the real problem. Right, he actually yeah, right yeah yeah that's a guy who's made his whole thing about how he's about how he's spending his money. He's on Doubled his worth or his billions of dollars aren't doing anybody any good in that (laughs) offshore bank account. Um, But anyways, my point is that I I think the question, the the thing that sort of comes that comes around to the the point I was trying to make here, is that the the response, the 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 protests I think indicate that the response to this to to, to the world that we have now cannot be incremental change. You know, we cannot trim the edges of this problem to solve it. That is, to me, the, 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 what is being shown so starkly uh, in, in the world today. Uh, and and uh, so, again, I, I have a guess, I have a guess of, of what your opinion might be, Lauren, but I want to throw that to you. <laughs> no, um, no, and, and I, I imagine you'd be exactly right. No, I, I completely agree. It's how, how we ever, like, this is, this is the natural point of progression. Everybody who predicted in the 80s and 90s what sort of neoliberalism would bring about, what this, like, unfettered ego side and pillaging of, of the planet this this is this is the natural point that we that, that we would get to in order to then catalyze this revolution that we're seeing globally and and yes it's kind of I, I think I think you're right to a degree there there yes there have always been both of civil unrest there's always been what some would describe as revolution happening around the world and in different pockets but but we're seeing a moment right now where 
where even the average person who works a nine-to-five job who's relatively comfortable can tell that something is up and can tell that, that we need to take action in, in a drastic way. Um, small little small little tweaks to the system aren't, aren't going to save us and, and aren't going to change anything. Honestly, when you, were, when you were talking, when you were speaking quite eloquently, it reminded me of maybe I'm showing my nerd stripes here, but you guys remember in in the Dark Knight Rises when when Catwoman is dancing with Batman at that party and she whispers in his ear, she's like, "You're gonna wonder how you lived so large for so long and left so little for the rest of us." <laughs> and I sort of feel like we're we are collectively as a, as a society, at least at least I hope that we're all sort of having that moment where we're realizing that like this is it's it's it's. It's bigger than the crash that happened between the 20s and the 30s, but it's, it's, it's almost evocative of that. I mean, people lived in this dream world where they thought we could just exponentially continue to take and take and take, and not just from the planet, but, but from each other. And that reaches a tipping point. Like, you, you can't continue to live on, on this fake money, this manufactured wealth forever. There's a breaking point, and we've reached it, and people are pissed. Yeah. That, that they've been forced to live in such squalor for so long. Um, and there's a movie that came out recently called Parasite. It, it's by a Korean director, and it sort of touches on a lot of these issues in a very sort of visceral way, and I would totally encourage people to go see it. Anyway, sorry. No, that that is amazing. Uh, we are, we're now running a little over time, so I will go uh, to the music break. Uh, but thank you so much, uh, Lauren. I will come back to talk about uh, a different kind of economy, a circular economy, and uh, and what the direction moving towards that. Thank you, Lauren. Have a beautiful day. Yes. And you all too. Enjoy the wonderful weather uh, and try to forget how depressing Dave's picture was. Uh, Saren, what do we listen to? junkies all over the world trample us on their way to the bank they run in every race the green majority is entirely listener supported our goal to reach minimum solvency is to raise $300 a month if you enjoy the show please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1 and welcome back to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, the sound of your city. Wow. Mm, and it is a good one. <laughs> and uh, I am Curly Dave Hostetter in studio with Stefan Hostetter, Saren Kaster on the ones and twos, and Kim Dolivera. Hi. Is returning. Glad uh, to be back. Yes, has returned our resident circular economy expert. Yeah, so uh, we're going to do three stories. Let's jump in. So, the great and eternally benevolent enterprise Unilever, a company that owns so many brands that its brand list has its own Wikipedia page, mostly in beauty products, detergents, and foodstuffs ranging from sausages to ice cream and tea, has decided to get into the world-saving business by pledging that its Dove brand will cut its use of virgin plastic in half and to help collect uh, and process more plastic packaging than it sells. It recently put out a press release touting its move to 100% recycled plastic bottles, where technically feasible, and plastic-free packs for its beauty bar, a product that it calls Iconic. It is also, quote, eliminating the use of plastics where possible by using alternative materials and new packaging formats, and will leverage the technology behind its new reusable, refillable, stainless steel format deodorant sticks. 
So I will say that uh, Unilever has been has been doing a lot. Like they're not just getting it. This isn't like a new thing for them. They're they've sort of right. been a part of this for a bit. But like, <laughs> just, can, like you know, despite the fact that the last segment was basically burn capitalism to the ground, I will say that Unilever is not new to trying to do good things with it. It's new to me, therefore it's new to the world. Uh, okay, sorry. That's how I live. Okay, sorry. That's how I live. Uh, so so Kim, I want to so like this is obviously again you know these are these are these are steps uh, and so and so how do you see this one? Well, uh, definitely there's some positive things that we can take away from this. Always reducing virgin plastic inputs is a positive thing for the state of our planet. Um, of course, uh, increasing the demand for recycled post-consumer recycled plastic is a great thing. So the more Dove uses, the more Unilever uses, the higher the global demand will be. And this may increase investment in recovery um, capacity and what Dave talked about, locations where solutions are currently not technically feasible. You know, folks may increase more uh, investment to those areas if the demand keeps to keeps rising. Um, and of course, consumer demand is the driver of these types of initiatives uh, for recycled content. So it's a good sign that Unilever, Dove, and the conglomerate sort of perceives that the that customers want this, um, and sort of having to um, make these changes to satisfy our needs and and our demands. And of course, as uh, you both mentioned this is not new. Unilever, uh, Dove parent company, has uh, pledged 100% um, plastic being packaging, being uh, reusable, recyclable, or compostable by 2025. Yeah, and so this is a so whenever something like this happens, there's definitely like you, like we are awash in 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 people telling us they're being environmentally friendly. You know, we are abs. And, and, and as soon as you get a new word or buzzword in there, you you, know, you get you get you get attacked with it. I almost feel like you know, like like the amount of which I'm if, if longer long listeners of the show will remember my uh, near aneurysm that I had consistently when people called Uber and Airbnb the sharing economy. Uh, and and so when I think the new thing is sort of this discussion of circular economy, right? Right. Um, and, and I'm, you know, some groups like, you know, like it's one thing to say we're going to recycle plastics. It's another thing to actually fundamentally change your business model towards an actually circular economy. You bet. Um, and, and so it gives like, like what are, how, what does this get us? How, how, like where on that spectrum uh, are we, are we seeing this? That's a really good question. And I think that it's important that we actually revisit what a circular economy is. So uh, on the dev website, it says uh, circular economy is a restorative and regenerative is restorative and regenerative by design. Those three words are key restorative, regenerative design. And this means that materials constantly flow around in a closed loop system rather than being used once and discarded. This is what they've sort of characterized a circular economy as. And, and would you generally agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Those those three key words are there, restorative, regenerative, and design. Right. So if we're going to take those three words and we're going to look at this initiative, um, you know, the recent science suggests that only 9% of the world's plastic is actually recycled, which means not only just placed in the blue bin, for example, but actually recovered and re-inputted into products. Um, and about 12% is incinerated. About 79%, of course, as we know, ends up in landfill or in the in natural environment. Yeah, yeah. Ends up in ends up in our oceans, right? So, oceans. so that's almost that's eighty percent, and that's the current number. Um, and we're sort of hovering around there. Some places are moving forward. Some are sort of, you know, at that level. And in some places, it's becoming harder to actually recycle, which is interesting. Um, so, for plastic bottles like the ones Dev uses, uh, this is usually due to contamination, coloring, residue. It's due due to their design. 
current design, which has, you know, features like labels, and they also use mixed plastics in there, you know, the lid, the pump, everything is a different type of plastic, there's blends of plastic in the product. Um, so that also makes it hard to recover. Um, and switching to recycled plastic does not change any of this and does not design it for effective recovery. So are we moving the needle on that 9%? Right. Or are we just making more of a market for that? You know, like, are we... Well, you know, if, if their their new recycled bottles have the same blend of materials, the same design features, the same contamination, um, they're just going to probably flow to that 80% which ends up in our um, natural environment and landfill than to actually being recovered effectively over and over again. Right, right. And, and I'm wondering if there's a, if we can just take a half second to, to sort of, you know, you've you sort of outlined in, in, in your sort of like an idea of like what, what, what one product might look like. Yeah. You know, like let's, 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 let's go through this, uh, this iconic Dev bar. Yeah, so this iconic bar, as Dave mentioned, <laughs> this beauty bar. Um, you know, if we're going to look, take a, a more systems look at what this actually is, um, the packaging is, is an aspect of it. So if we take a life cycle analysis, which we use a lot in circular economy to sort of trace the Im impacts of the product through its entire life cycle from raw materials to when it ends up in our homes. Uh, so... Raw materials, the formulation of the iconic Duff Bar, um, sodium toluate. It's a cattle fat, um, and it's usually gained from uh, causes greenhouse gases. Usually gained from factory farming, um, which you know is associated with huge uh, carbon outcomes, Amazon destruction, etc. Another key ingredient is sodium polycarbonate. It's a palm derivative, and of course, um, <laughs> palm forest deforestation. Biodiversity loss. Wait, I, I can't. I cannot believe that the thing that they're talking about being recycling includes palm oil or anything related to palm stuff. That's un, that, that is that seems like such an obvious like. I, that's unbelievable. Anyway, sorry. And no, no worries. And you know, fundamentally, a lot of Dove products include petroleum-based ingredients. So the actual ingredients in the products themselves, not just the packaging are petroleum derived. And you just take one look at the back of that bottle and you can see so many different ingredients that are petroleum or petrolatum based and none of that is changing. So the package, it's packaged in plastic, but it's also made of plastic. Um, if we look at manufacturing- can we recycle that plastic? Is that, <laughs> that, is that No, that's going directly into the water. Oh, that's great, that's yeah, great. Directly from our bodies into, into our lakes and uh, sewage systems, et cetera. Right. Uh, so manufacturing, that's the second step of the life cycle. So raw materials, manufacturing, Plants are predominantly powered by fossil fuels. Many parts of the world that Dove makes their products are, you know, they use fossil fuels to create electricity to power the plants. Um, of course, the chemical processes to synthesize and mix detergents um, are often toxic and they cause runoff and, and contamination issues. Transportation is another aspect of the life cycle of, of these products. And for, uh, of course, there's raw materials for fossil fuels for transportation. Um, and finished product needs to be transported. And of course, Dove is manufactured in many countries. Distance to end market is always a concern. Where is this Dove bar being made? Where are these ingredient, ingredients being um, extracted and transported to and produced? So, and then we get to packaging. Right, <laughs> right. And and I and I think that's the that's the that's sort of what the the question uh, you know that, that I was sort of getting at was was sort of like you know we we seem so obsessed so consistently with the, I guess the thing that we as consumers experience rather than the rest of it, right? Like right. it's the reason why, you know, why plastic, why straws seem to be this, this weird art, this piece of a thing we care about versus like, 
the fact that you're just drinking, pla- you know, plastic. You know, like it's like you know, there's this like Absolutely. we're so consistently having these ideas of like, oh yeah, all these other things. Like, oh, I saved the straw. Now, did it? Did everything else arrive? You know, like there's so many other pieces and we get so caught up in these external factors. We absolutely do. And it's part consumer's perspective. It's also part, you know, how the discussion is being led by these conglomerates. Right. You know, they don't want the focus on the product itself. They don't want the focus on the life cycle of the product. If you make the plastic bottle the issue, which is an issue, but actually the whole thing is an issue. Right. So it's also we're being led to this direction saying the, the plastic bottle is the issue. We're going to fix that. We're all good. But actually it's much deeper than that. And, you know, requires a lot more consideration on our part as consumers. Yeah. And so so I think the, the what's interesting to me is the fact that we're looking at, you know, we have – so when, when the problem gets that big, basically – um, that the that you sort of end up at a point where like you know the market is not going to solve this problem. You know you can't trust the market to solve all this problem because you know we as consumers it would take so long for to convince every consumer to like read the back to ensure everything is in good palm oil yada yada. Like the consumer solution it has to be involved, but you do need government, um, which is how I'm going to segue into the second story uh, about about sort of how the UK is uh, is more working on trying to find a way to actually push this forward. So if you want to jump into the to the Cycled costs and plastics. So Gillian Ambrose reported recently for The Guardian that in the past few months in Europe, recycled plastic has for the first time become more expensive than virgin plastic. It seems that the attempt to use more recycled plastic has driven up its price, while the shale gas boom in the U.S. has made virgin plastic cheaper. Ambrose notes that big manufacturers may already be locked into the machinery uh, that they use to process recycled material, but smaller manufacturers might have to switch to non-recycled plastic to lower their costs. The whole thing could mean that the demand for fresh plastic goes up, since so many of us seem driven purely by convenience and profit. But Ambrose points out that Coca-Cola's European business, in its supreme and unquestionable beneficence, unimpeachable and angelically inclined, plans to cut its soft drink bottles virgin plastic in half within two years and change the color of Sprite bottles so that they can be reused, and that the UK plans to tax companies whose plastic products aren't made of at least 30% recycled material. Yeah, and so and so this is interesting, right? This is an example of the market trying to get a thing, and then it becoming interestingly pricing out a lot of a, a lot of people into the market. So uh, when it started, sort of like, why is the supply so low? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. Um, what I'd love to say is that there's a couple of good points here um, mm. before we talk about right. the supply because sure. it's a big issue. Yeah. Um, so the UK government taxing um, products that uh, do not contain a certain percentage of re- recycled materials, hey, it's a great step in the right direction. Um, of course, these con- these costs will ultimately be offloaded on consumers and suppliers. These are large companies and suppliers will be pressed. These small suppliers we, we saw in the article will be pressed to, to provide these products at lower and lower prices. Um, also, a good thing is that generally 50 percent um, recycled content can be added to existing manufacturing processes without having to change equipment or, again, fundamentally alter that business model. Mm. So when you see numbers like 30%, you see numbers like 50% from these these companies, it's for that reason. It's right. because they can sort of supplement or divert 50% of their virgin material without making a change 
to their their manufacturing process or any change to their right. business model. So this is a sort of a simple uh, way to get some some points without actually again without really fundamentally changing what they're doing. Absolutely. And to your point, you know the 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 big thing that that um, stood out for me in this one is why is a supply so low in Europe? Um, so many companies, back to our benevolent um, overlords Unilever, um, and many others say they can't get their hands on sufficient quality quantities uh, and quality post-consumer recycled material. And why is that? Um, so there's what we discussed earlier. There's contamination, mixing polymers, volume reliability issues, recovery costs, and lack of capacity to recover. Um, there's what's happening with China closing its markets to these sort of contaminated bales of plastic we've been shipping over there and saying, you sort this, you recover this. They've closed their market. Um, of course, other countries such as Vietnam, Malaysia, et cetera, they have more lax um, labor and um, environmental laws. And we're sort of seeing more investment in um, starting there, and we're also seeing more environmental consequences there because, frankly, Europe and, and ourselves as well have become addicted to um, really offloading our recovered but not yet recycled materials on these um, developed or developing countries to do it for us and sort of sort through the mess because we don't really have effective ways to capture different types of plastic um, because, again, there's so much contamination and mixing. Um, so there's technologies out there that are effective. There's magnets, there's chemical processes that can actually sort of break the, what we're at now is just sort of taking this plastic soup, breaking it back down into its, its constituent ingredients, and then reformulating it to plastics that we want to use like PET, um, recycled PET, et cetera. That's sort of where we're at now. But again, that's limited, costly, um, and those, those solutions aren't going to ramp up for a long time. Yeah. And it sort of speaks, I think, to the, to the, you know, when you're, well, it speaks to sort of a the the the, fa the inability for the market to really solve this problem, right? It speaks to the in some ways, or at least to fully solve this problem, whether or not it'll be part of it. Um, you know, in the fact that you know you're looking at the you know at some point you are going to discover that it is if it is three cents to have for, you know. Cheap plastic from uh, from from North America. Uh, do the fracking boom? You are going to make that decision before you make the decision to fundamentally change your business model. Like like you're just going to do that, right? Absolutely. And you know, to your point about fracking, um, they mentioned it in the article, and there's a lot of cheap oil pouring into the market. The price of oil is quite low relative to what it's been in previous years, and this has a lot of consequences for um, you know the secondary plastic market as well, more broadly on investment in um, you know. Uh, technologies and and products that are actually um, you know good for the environment. So if we compare sort of if we look at we want to look at North America, I think because Europe is a little bit different than we are. Um, we have a lot more of this cheap oil flooding our market. And in a report by the Continuous Improvement Fund, if we look at you know virgin plastic, the access is excellent and increasing. Um, recycle is fair and it's problematic due to the reasons we discussed. Um, the uh, quality virgin. Plastic is an excellent quality. It's reliably the, the reliable reliability of the quality is very high, um, and of course, uh, contract security. Virgin has a sort of a standard bankable contract. You know how much you can get. You can keep your production going. Recycled. There's a little bit of little available, and in some instances, because of um, we not uh, our our um, societies. I'm talking about Ontario not having the technologies to effectively recycle things, be plastics, because we've been shipping them overseas. Um, the there's a little there's a low availability relative to what the market is actually demanding because we haven't actually invested in the technology to capture these materials that were never meant to be captured. Right. Let's be fair here. And of course, manufacturing costs. 
virgin costs are decreasing as more shale oil is coming on the market. People are investing more and more in making that into plastic and other products. Um, and of course, recycled um, co the cost to recycle um, plastics are increasing because we're increasingly um, the burden is on us to sort of sort our polluted sort of um, contaminated bales ourselves. Um, market demand, of course, um, as Dave mentioned, is increasing for virgin products. It's increasing exponentially higher than it is for recycled plastic products. Yeah, and and that's and that's a you know, and it's it's it sort of speaks to the sort of fundamental uh, difficulty of, of of switching a model, right? Of of building something else. And so we are we are sort of bumping up against a time thing, but I do want to get to this last story. So we're gonna I'm gonna try to encourage us to speed through it as much as we can. Totally. And I just want to say one thing yeah, yeah. to conclude um, is that you know legislation can go a long way in this, and requiring mandatory recycled content is something that every government can do. Right. So if we add value to recycled material that isn't already there, um, we can certainly sort of stimulate this. And there's a way that laws can help us um, sort of achieve more recycled content and more investment in recycling right. and sooner. Even, and and, with, and without yeah. too much difficulty because of the 50% you mentioned earlier. Absolutely. Right. Uh, so so theoretically, the way, so like we've just sort of spent a bunch of time, you know, saying recycling real hard. Uh, so the <laughs> so the way, I feel like the way you could get around this, uh, which leads us to our third story, is to what if we did away with trying to, you know, have single use or, or you know, reuse plastics over and over again. Right. Um, and we mentioned this, I think, last time you were on briefly about the Loop platform. Uh, but so it's been around for a while. Uh, we did there's a review of it of how it's going and I'm just curious if we can talk about it again as quickly as we can yeah so the American business magazine Forbes an outlet so pathologically enamored with rich people that it often hails them <laughs> as revolutionaries simply for being rich and which boasted a cover page last year of Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos with the heading Bezos Unbound is reporting that the reusable packaging company Loop has officially gone live Loop's founder, Tom Zaki, has uh, for the past 15 years been helping companies recycle waste as difficult as diapers, cigarette butts, and ocean plastic through his company, TerraCycle. Now, through the Loop brand, he is helping companies use reusable metal or glass packaging for products as diverse as detergent, orange juice, and toothpaste. Loop works by collecting the returned packaging through refundable deposits, washing them, and returning them to the original companies to refill. And Fields notes for Forbes that brands are allowed to participate if their packaging can be reused at least 10 times. 41 brands are currently listed on the website. Kate Bratskier of HuffPost has recently reviewed the Loop method. You order products online and they show up through UPS within two days in a huge and sturdy bag, which she says takes up too much room uh, in her tiny apartment. You drop off the stuff at UPS and the deposit uh, refunds get sent to your credit card. She says it made her feel good and become more sensitive to her waste habits in general, but that it was expensive, limited in choice, and not entirely waste-free because there are tiny little plastic uh, sealants on the thing to make sure it hasn't been tampered with. Mm. Uh, and that it could help greenwash companies' contributions to climate change. The director of Zero Waste Europe told her that Loop is a good initiative with the best intentions, but that a service like Loop should be as simple and hassle-free as throwing out a candy wrapper in order to succeed. A history professor she spoke to said it needs government investment in order to move away from being a mere boutique consumer item. 
Yeah, and I think that's yep. that, I think that speaks to the that last sort of line speaks I think to the to the real need of of this. But I want to, very quickly. Um, so, how do you see this this landing? I you know I I see where um, Kate is coming from. I think that there's a, a win win in terms of brand loyalty through this auto f- refill subscription model. Um, so that is that's a win. Also, reducing single use is a win. But of course, we've got to use this stuff. Um, it's a, it's a giant, it's a giant box with lots of products. So if you're going to try out the loop platform, I recommend to, you know, go forward and really fill that giant box that she mentions. Um, and you know, truthfully, um, I love that there's alternatives out there, but my recommendation is really to buy products made in Canada by Canadian companies. Uh, there's a few reasons for that because, um, and by, by, Buying products made by Canadian companies, I mean manufactured, produced, assembled, sourced. Um, They generally have a lower ecological footprint. Um, They increase economic benefits in our country. Jobs, profits, and value are reinvested in our country. Um, And they often have increased quality and better service. So Loop is great, diverting plastic waste. But there's a lot of great options right now that actually will have an ultimately lower ecological footprint that you can buy locally. Uh, One of my favorites right now... um, that does not contain any petroleum byproducts mm-hmm. is a company called Onika out of Quebec. They have their own farm out there. Um, they're very um, intentional with their sourcing. And they're also available for refill at the Toronto Tool Library. So they may be a plastic bottle. Um, however, the ingredients are sound and restorative to the environment. And you can also take that bottle, clean it, and get it, re- and get it refilled at our very own Toronto Tool Library. Amazing. Um, I, I will say, I'd say there's a level of, um, you know, I feel like the, the, the world we move into is the world where we all get palm oil put in metal uh, containers and, and circle that back and forth. It's not exactly how far we need to get. Um, uh, so, Rub that into your scalp, Stefan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Rub that deforestation right into the scalp. Mm, mm, that's, moisturizing. That's wonderful. Uh, thank you so much, you know, Kim, the as always. The best cure for uh, rainforest deforestation is actually if you rub a little coconut oil on the rainforest. Oh, that just is it just, it just it does it all right there. Oh, there you go. Uh, well, that is great. Uh, thank you so much, Kim, for joining us as always. Uh, we'll be back after a short music break to talk about CBC Kids because for some reason they exist. Uh, we'll go right back. And we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful community, uh, uh, community partners, as well as our podcast listeners. I will do my final pitch today for this show that uh, next week is uh, CIUT's uh, uh uh, early bird. I was going to say spring because I have the words early bird in front of me, but right. fall. It's the fall, fall yes. fundraiser for CIUT here. Lots of wonderful early bird prizes if you get your uh, uh, membership in before November the 10th. Uh, you can do that through CIUT.fm. Some wonderful uh, tickets to Mervis shows have been gifted to us uh, to give away. Um, so for Cats, Anastasia, or Come From Away, someone, if they get the, I can't win the tickets, but I wouldn't mind seeing Come From Away. If anyone wins and needs someone, you can let me know. <laughs> um, I think that's allowed. I have no idea. I'm, it, well, let's just say it's allowed. Right. Um, and uh, and uh, and we'll have some fun programming. I I, uh, I have some special segment planned. Uh, no, will there be fun for next week? If you are listening on one of our syndicated networks, there's a chance you won't hear the show live because they don't always play our syndication shows. Can't blame them. Um, but if you're still interested in the great content, uh, make sure that's a great time uh, time to go and sign up for the podcast uh, because we're still, even though it's a fundraising show, we're still going to have a lot of great content on the show next week. So that's all I'm going to say for now. But uh, stay tuned for more. 
Yeah, and we will actually have a, a, a fun interview next week as well uh, with someone who's working on a, a little bit of a circular economy thing. So, Venus Erica Reyes from Wisebird will be on the show as well. So, Wisebird? Wise, Wisebird. Wisebird. Okay. No, it's not like she's not cooking meth. Um, but uh, let's go to uh, let's go to their story about CBC Kids. <laughs> what? That's a, 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 a Breaking Bad joke, Dave. It's, I know it's not exactly Weisberg? his last name. There's no Wisebird in that. Uh, what's his last Heisenberg. name? Heisenberg. Heisenberg. See, it's still Heisenberg. a Berg. Oh, I feel like that's. I just took Berg. I got it. Thank Dave, you. It worked. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't get it. Uh, but anyways, let's uh, let's go to this kids article. The uh, <laughs> the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, or the CBC as the kids call it, started a venture called CBC Kids News about a year ago, where they publish news articles and even corporate content geared towards kids, as in, like an advertisement about a video game set in Toronto that was presented like an article. The pieces never include an author's name and try to present a variety of opinions, always watered down to appeal to the small brains of children. At the bottom of the stories, they present a group of emojis that you can click on to indicate how much you liked the article. <laughs> what Do you remember what the emojis are? Yeah, they're like, you know, unhappy face, sad face, ah, okay. upside down happy face, mm. happy face. Really happy face. Okay, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they published an article last month titled, Not Everyone is Happy About Greta Thunberg's Trip to Alberta. Beginning, quote, Thousands of climate protesters will join Greta Thunberg in a Canadian city today as part of the hashtag Fridays for Future marches. This time she's in Edmonton, in the heart of Canada's oil country. The article describes how the counter-protesters who showed up to her rally... Uh, describes the counter-protesters who showed up to a rally and shows pictures of a convoy of huge trucks that go around the country supporting pipelines. They quote a 20-year-old who believes that protesting does not help solve climate change and who told them, quote, I was hoping that Greta would be able to come up with an open mind. Fundamentally, I hope uh, this will be a learning experience for her. Canada is a world leader in human rights, environmental sustainability, and safety, and all of this is reflected in how we produce energy. They also quote a 15-year-old who said, quote, a lot of us environmental activists here are not against oil and gas workers because we are aware that they are doing a supply and demand industry. That's what a lot of Albertans make their money on, and that's how a lot of Albertans are fed. I hope she considers that. Then they mentioned that Jason Kenney chose not to meet Greta and that the mayor of Edmonton was willing to talk with her about some environmentally friendly projects that were going on. Yeah. So this, you sort of sent this along uh, to our, to our, in our conversation about uh, just sort of as I like, like a, this was a, an odd thing that exists. And to me, it is, it is an, it is an example of one of the weirder ways that that this country is more captured by the oil industry you know uh can you imagine if a you know if if an activist against private prisons came to you know came to the canada and, and we and then and they, they asked the private prison industry someone who was sort of like you know it's a supply and demand i i think that i i just hope that they know that us making money off imprisoning people is is just a requirement of our experience this is how you a know, lot of albertans are fed yeah like and again i'm not which is does i'm not going to say that does not speak to the fact that you cannot uh, underestimate the importance of of, of not vilifying 
the actual workers who are in this. I, I, I 100% believe that you have to supply good jobs to these workers 100%. And, and that the, 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 the ire that we have is not for, the, not for the people, but for the people making the money, honestly, who are, 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 are much more likely, much more similar, I would say, to, say, to Greta and her family than to the oil barons who are, who are cleaning up on this. But the concept that our national broadcaster would, see, would think that, that, that the idea of seeing a young person trying to take action to make a better world and require on their kids' broadcast, which I can, it is not the hard-hitting journalism here. You know, we're not talking, like, this is talking directly to what I imagine is 12-year-olds, maybe, yeah. um, about after, after kids and the youth have so clearly within, within Alberta, you know, like the fact that they didn't even talk to anyone from climate justice at you know, Edmonton. Uh, or, or, or any of these, any of these have a whole bunch of other articles generally about, uh, how you can cope psychologically with climate change and stuff. And they have other, they have other, <laughs> so, they have other climate articles right, right. So they have that, aren't, on... that aren't balanced with a, with a critical lens, right. but it's never, it really is never, um, very deep. Well, like, well, of course it's kids, very but shallow. like to write a hit piece about a 16 year old, like, you can, tell, you, you can tell children complicated things, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. They're, not, they're just choosing not to. Well, but not only that, you can talk to but not only the, the idea that you are that these are these are, that these are kids who are like artists experiencing seeing someone who looks like them trying to make the world a better place, and your response is uh, actually if everything's fine, thanks, is is despicable. It's and, and the fact that we're funding this, like again, I am again very pro funding the CBC. I'm into that. Uh, very not pro when um, when the the funding that that comes at that 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 we're, that we're paying for is basically just a glorified way to indoctrinate children into the petro state. Like, what are we doing here? It's 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 un it's. You know, I get the idea that you want to have a diverse range of opinions across things, but like on a kids thing, just. Just say that this is a, something that she believes in, and she wants a better world. And I just can't imagine a, any. I can't imagine there being a hit piece on any other youth activist in this country. Next, like if someone can find me another CBC Kids article that's taken shots at another youth trying to make the world a better place, I would love to see it. Unless maybe that's their brand. Maybe their brand is bullying. I just, I just do not get this uh, from a fundamental sense. Uh, but we are running out of time. It's a uh, be better campaign. Yeah, it's like are you like. It's like we, we're funding kids' journalism to be a hit piece, and I just don't fundamentally understand that concept. But uh, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. If you uh, if you have a good argument as to why our, our, our we should be you know using our CBC broadcasting kids to bully uh, young people trying to make change, uh, t- tweet me. I don't know why CBC Kids exists. CBC articles are already very easy to understand. Well, like let's uh, like, that's a whole different question. But we are out of time. Uh, come in next week uh, for the CIUT fundraiser. If you can donate right now on ciut.fm. Uh, uh, it is a big, very important time, uh, so please support us and the station. At the, we are the sound of your city. Have a good green week, everyone, and we'll see you all real soon.